1: Welcome to the Highway Hi Fi podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe.
2: And I'm Ryan, and congratulations! You have found the internet's finest podcast for Music from the Asylum. We're going to start today off with a little bit of trivia.
0: I'm
1: going to lead things off today with an audio quiz, and I am going to play five clips of music. And what I would like everybody to do is name the artist, the song, and then at the end, tell me what the theme is. And as a clue, the theme is based on the songs, not the artist. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't also tell me the artist (laughs) if you want full credit. Oh, come on now. All right. Here we go. Track one.
3: Here we go again.
1: Track two.
3: Okay, this guy walks into the
4: bar. No, I'm just, I'm just walking with my Not as this, this young boy and this old boy, and as standing on top of a hill. And I try
1: to, to track three. Track
3: five.
1: Okay. How do you feel about that?
2: Um, not so good, Joe. I don't feel very good about it
1: at all. Okay. How'd you do on The Artist? I think I got all the artists. Great, that doesn't matter. How'd you do <laughs> <with> the songs? <laughs> <laughs> what a jerk! Uh,
2: I don't know. I got. A, I think I got two or three songs, but the theme. The theme is. I feel like I'm missing whole parts of the clue I need for the theme.
1: Okay. Well, why don't you ruminate on it for a little while, and we'll play it again at the end of the episode, so you can have. Kind of some time to think about what those song titles might be.
2: Get some time to Google what Ruminate means, too. All right, I got a giant-sized quiz for you today, Joe. This one is called What's in a Name? And so I will give you a musician's birth name, and you just tell me their more famous moniker. So if I say Robert Allen Zimmerman, you say... Bob Dylan. Perfect. All right. It's going to be quick fire. You're going to have one or two seconds to answer. Okay, and then I, I'll buzz you off. It starts easy. Starts easy. Uh-huh. I doubt it. Nah, Richard Starkey, Ringo Starr, David Robert Jones, David Bowie, Declan McManus, Elvis Costello, James Osterberg, Iggy Pop, Ingram Cecil Connor the Second,
1: Elton John, No Graham Parsons. Oh, okay. Shoot. Okay.
2: Name like Ingram Cecil Connor, you know he has to be a rich kid from Florida or whatever. Punk. Gordon Sumner. Sting. Farouk
3: Balsura. You know this one. He's very popular now. He's played with Mr. Robot with a giant set of teeth.
2: Freddie Mercury.
1: Oh, of course. Son of a bitch. Okay. Yep. Damn.
2: That's an easy one. Yep. I thought that was a okay. gimme. All right. Here we go. Nowhere to go but down from here, though. All right. Marvin Lee a day. Sell some of my favorite mm, food. Meatloaf. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Um, <laughs> Malcolm John Rebenack.
3: Dr. John. Very good. Virginia Hensley. This one's a little bit harder.
1: I don't know. Patsy Klein. Okay, okay.
2: Okay. That was uh that was level two. Now we're bumping it up to level three. Here we go. Okay. Vincent Fernier.
1: Alice Cooper. Very good. Stephen Giorgio. Stephen Giorgio. Uh huh. Can you even can you spell that last name? Yep. I don't trust you.
2: G. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not saying it right. G e o r g i o u. Stephen Giorgio.
1: Boy George.
3: Cat Stevens.
1: Oh, okay, okay. All right. Stuart Goddard.
3: That's Adam Ant.
1: These are all ones I've heard, but man, they're I'm. Not able to pull those out.
3: Yeah, we're get, it's getting tough here. Rudy Martinez. I don't know. Question mark.
1: That was actually the only thing I was thinking with that one, and I didn't do it. Okay.
2: <laughs> Except you weren't thinking the uh, the band. You were actually thinking of a question mark, like yeah, no. <laughs> like a little <laughs> b- <laughs> a light bulb. That's all I have in my head at any point. <laughs> Steveland Hardaway Junkins.
1: What's the first name?
2: Steveland Hardaway Junkins. Steveland.
1: Steveland. Rhymes with Cleveland. Stevie Wonder.
2: Yes, very good. All right, just a few more. Chester Arthur Burnett. That is Howland Wolf. Excellent. I don't think you're gonna get this one, but Edward Lewis
1: Severson the Third. I'll do that one for Elton John. I know he has one of those weird, Eddie long... Eddie Vedder. What is his real name? <laughs>
2: Edward Lewis Severson Third. And if he actually tried to sing his last name, it would take like 17 minutes.
1: His eyes would roll even further back into his head. <laughs> exactly. John Simon Ritchie.
2: I can't think of it. Who is it? Sid Vicious. All right, this one you should get. Herbert Buckingham Cowrie.
1: I'm just going to keep going back to Elton John if I don't know it and it's got a weird name like that.
2: We did a uh, turntable talk on him.
1: What's his name? Herbert
2: Buckingham Cowrie. Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim. Okay. Just a few more. I keep saying that. Gil Hamilton. Johnny Thunders.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: Gil Hamilton is the least Johnny Thunder sounding name there is, though.
1: Sounds like a manservant. Yes,
2: it does. It does. Cloud Russell Bridges.
1: Is it Claude or Cloud? Uh, Claude. Claude Bridges. Okay. Um, country singer? Mm, not as such. Okay. I don't know. Leon
2: Russell.
3: Okay. Richard
1: Wayne Penniman.
3: Um, Oh, good golly, you have.
1: Is it Richard Hell? Nope. Who is it? Little Richard. Okay, okay. All right. Chris Carson. I don't know that one. Chris Christopherson. Why would he change his name to that?
2: I don't know. Chris Carson's like a perfect country name.
1: Yeah, that's strange.
2: All right, last one. If you get this one, I will send you back the record I have of yours, of hers. Yvonne Vaughn.
1: That is... um, Hold on. The Happiest Girl in the Whole mm-hmm. USA?
2: It's my favorite Coen Brothers flick. Donna
1: Fargo. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yvonne Vaughn is really good, though, too. Yeah, yeah. That's the point. Why change something like that? Oh, Donna Fargo
2: is a pretty awesome name. That's true. Good job. Some of those are really hard. I didn't even put the Elton John one on. I don't, what is Elton John one?
1: I don't know. I thought you were going to do Elton John and Brian Eno. They both have really incredible names, I think. I could be wrong about Elton John, though. Elton John's like Reginald. Reginald, that's right. It would have Dwight been. Dwight or something. What's, what's yeah. uh, Brian Eno's? He has like 20
2: names. That's right.
1: His real name is Brian, Peter, George, St. John, Le Baptiste, De La Salle, Eno. You know. That's, that's, that's got to be fake. M.D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Pretty good name.
2: Great name. Great name, great man. So if you were keeping score at home, including... uh. Elton John and Brian Eno, if you got 27, you got them all right. There were 27 of them? Well, there were
1: 25, and then we added two at the end. Okay. That was crazy. I didn't, I really had no idea that you hit more than like 12. It went by really fast.
2: All right. Good work. I think it's time to get to our turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me
1: I don't hear a word to say Only the echoes of my mind The world's greatest DJ fought his way through the unforgiving London crowds to get to the lamppost across the way. His determined face, hidden behind a wispy beard and shoulder-length hair, he pulled out paste and an unadorned flyer from his coat pocket. He smoothed the paper with his hand, ensuring affixation. An inauspicious method of finding a band, he thought. Weeks earlier, a mysterious demo tape had appeared in the post. The band, or whatever they were, hadn't bothered to include a return address. Just a tiny label that read, "Coin He glanced over the bulletin one last time. Strong black lettering that read simply, Wanted. Coin. Clegg. Contact John Peel. Care of BBC Radio 1. He nodded slightly and walked on, pondering which light post might hold the key to finding his latest obsession. Fortunately, Peel's persistence paid off. The band, which actually was a duo, soon reached out to the soothsaying radioman. They were signed onto his label almost immediately. Dandelion Records was founded by Peel as a way to release obscure music that he loved but that major labels wouldn't poke at with a stick. Dandelion was the name of Peel's hamster and became the namesake of his label at the suggestion of his flatmate Mark Bolin. In 1969, one of the very first singles released on the label, this seemingly unremarkable 1969 blue-eyed boogie-woogie cut titled The Stride.
3: Mm,
0: come on, there ain't much time. Join this dance on party like stride. Yeah, 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 and mm. Come on baby the well, forget about the and the Do a dance. It's
1: The record was mistakenly attributed as just Clegg. This track was the start of Peel's obsession with the unique blues drawl and unconventional songwriting of the young singer Kevin Coyne. It was a love affair that would last Peel's entire life. A copy of that single was found amongst the prized assemblage of a hundred and forty-two forty-fives in a small wooden box that Peel had set apart from the rest of his massive library of 100,000-plus records.
2: Kevin Coyne would release over 40 albums in the course of his 35-year career. The vast majority were barely distributed and out of print almost immediately. He would be hailed and championed by the likes of Peel, Richard Branson, Johnny Rotten, the Mekon, Sting, and Will Oldham, and would collaborate with countless prominent musicians. He would unceremoniously reject an offer by Elektra Records to be the dead Jim Morrison's replacement in The Doors, quipping that he didn't like leather pants. He would go on to write scores of songs about the fringes of humanity, dealing with mental illness and addiction with empathy and poise that few could match. He would pride himself on never giving the same performance twice, and by all accounts could back up this claim. He would pen bizarre operas and theme albums about nefarious characters including notorious mobsters, the Cray Brothers, subversive comedian Frank Randall, the evil incarnate Moore murderers, and the acid-damaged Sid Barrett. And he would remain known as someone who is famously unknown.
1: Kevin Coyne was born in Derby, England in 1944. Derby is one of the few cities in the world that can honestly claim to be one of the birthplaces of the Industrial Revolution, with the first water-powered silk mill opening in 1717. Up into the 20th century, it continued to thrive as a mostly railroad manufacturing town, with Rolls-Royce even opening a car and airplane factory there in 1907. The city was targeted by German zeppelins in World War I. And in the 20s and 30s, it was also a target of slum clearance, which is the practice of moving people from low-income or poverty-stricken areas and placing them in the suburbs. Though it didn't sustain the bombing that other manufacturing cities in England did during World War II, it didn't seem to thrive beyond those years either. Were you to grill anyone on the most famous people to come from Derby? Kevin Coyne would be a distant second to Lara Croft. As a child, Coyne was bullied because of his small frame and bulbous head. When he was 13 in 1957, he started attending the first of two art schools he would stay in until 1965. It was in the second school that he met Nick Cutworth, who would become his bandmate in Siren. It was also at art school that Coyne started playing guitar and singing, both of which he did in a way that was his and his alone, his guitar style, Involved an open tuning with the guitar laying flat on his lap and thumb strumming for each song, and he continued to do that throughout his whole career. His voice was somewhere between Joe Cocker, Captain Beefheart, and Little Richard. He was basically Charlie Brown with a full head of hair singing Captain Beefheart-style vocals. Right around the same time that Beefheart had been recording demos for Safe as Milk.
2: 1965 would prove to be an incredibly important year for Coyne. He married his first wife and, upon leaving art school, began working at Whittingham Psychiatric Hospital as a social therapist, where he took patients out for day trips and led painting classes. Coyne would stay at Whittingham for three years, and it was those three years that impacted most of his best work for the next four decades. By the time he left Whittingham in 1968, Coyne had been emotionally drained and was a wreck, suffering from depression and starting a period of heavy drinking that only got heavier for a long time to come. It was, however, while he was working at Whittingham that Coyne, Cudworth, and Dave Clegg formed Siren. Clegg had briefly been a bassist for the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. When Coyne left Whittingham, he took a job as a bus driver and then as a drug counselor, but it was Siren that was his priority the band was playing out a lot more and building up a following. Most of their first album had been recorded while Coyne was still at Winningham, and one of these songs, Asylum, was his first recorded foray into writing songs about people who'd been pushed off into institutions and hidden away from society.
0: Can you see me? Can you see my eyes? Do you notice me When you're riding by I live in a great big park Where it's always dark Where the fence is high And the birds are dying
1: Enter the aforementioned John Peel and his newly formed record label Dandelion. Peel, who was a tastemaker for independent and just plain interesting music for years, started that record label in 1969, and it ran briefly until 1972. The label was designed as a non-profit with all money being split 50-50 with the artists, and any money going back to Dandelion would only be used to make more records. It was mostly a way for John Peel to promote artists he liked and who he thought should be listened to by more people. Aside from their debut single from the band Bo, with a song called 1917 Revolution shooting to number one in Lebanon, <laughs> hits were few and far between. Their biggest hit outside of Lebanon was 1971's Pictures in the Sky by Medicine Head. Medicine Head, for some bonus trivia, released an album titled Dark Side of the Moon one year before Pink Floyd released their album of the same name. Pink Floyd even had to ask permission to use that title.
2: I wonder which uh, which version of Dark Side of the Moon was more popular in Lebanon.
1: <laughs> I don't, yeah, that's a good, no, that's a question. That's a question. <laughs> that is definitely a question. <laughs> <laughs> John Peel was a fan of Coyne's band Siren, and their only two albums, the eponymous first album in 69 and their second, called Strange Locomotion in 71, were both released on Dandelion. Siren broke up during a tour of America to promote their second album. That first album had sold poorly, and that caused Coyne to become even more depressed, and it ignited his drinking even further. You have one or both of these records, don't you? I have the first one, the self-titled. Yep. Is it pretty good all the way through? It is, yeah. One of the very early episodes that we recorded, I played the song Zzzz, I think is, is how many z's are in that. <laughs> it's really good. It's also about somebody's mind kind of breaking up to the point where the narrator becomes obsessed with a woman that he hasn't even actually met yet. It's creepy.
2: Yeah, yeah, it sounds creepy. Coin Coin does creepy pretty good though. That's, he does. It's one of his
1: styles. He does uncomfortable.
2: Yes, yeah, and sad too. Coin's drinking and depression didn't impact his output, and his first solo LP, Case History, was released in '72. By that point, Dandelion wasn't able to spend any money on marketing, and the album went mostly unnoticed. But it was with this album that Coin took what he had started with the song Asylum and expanded it to show all of the downtrodden grittiness of living with serious mental illness. These are the wives of people who were locked away and who were electroshocked and dosed into submissive surrender, as on the track Sand All Yellow.
0: I've a good intentions, baby Lucky one voiceover. One pair of knives one pair of goggles,
2: baby. Two The songs aren't kind and they aren't melodramatic and most importantly they don't celebrate an idyllic kind of crazy often found in music. These are the songs of famous artists and musicians. These were the songs of and for people you might be afraid to see in your neighborhood. Because of his experiences getting to know and care for these people, Coyne had a connection that very few of us ever could, and he shared that with the world in a way that no one ever had, with rawness, honesty, futility, and humor. My favorite track on the album is Mad Boy. It's frightening and harrowing, and it showcases Coyne's ability to put forth thoughts that only exist in the minds of people who lack the ability to communicate. It's
0: in his head, it's in his head. It's in his head, it's in his head. It's in his head,
2: Case history propelled his songwriting, and he seemed to be finally focused.
1: After case history, Dandelion Records folded, and Coyne found himself being courted by Richard Branson. Prior to becoming the founder of Virgin Cola, and the world record holder for crossing the English Channel in an amphibious vehicle, Branson, at the age of 16, was a public school dropout, who'd started a zine called Student. That was in 1966. Though that paper had been able to land an interview for him with Mick Jagger, it didn't make any money. Through Student, Branson started a mail-order record business, which turned into a record store in 1971. His store was known for selling records at incredibly low prices. For a while, that simply meant that Branson was losing a lot of money. That is, until he started defrauding customs and evading taxes. In Britain at the time, there was a 33% tax for music sellers on records sold domestically. But that tax didn't apply for records sold internationally. Branson would load his truck up with records and head to Customs, where he'd get everything stamped for sales abroad. But instead of continuing on and having the records shipped, he simply turned his truck around and sold the records at discounted prices. Customs became hip to this scheme pretty quick, and after a sting was set up, Branson was jailed, briefly. Somehow, he was able to continue his record store and ended up turning it into a lucrative business that became Virgin Records.
2: He should have gone down to Jamaica. (laughs) He would have fit right in with those guys.
1: Yeah, just put some speakers in his truck.
2: (laughs) Drive it around, evade some customs,
1: (laughs) (laughs) with a suitcase full of dynamite. The first record to be released on Virgin was Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. and was a massive hit. While Tubular Bells was being recorded at Branson's studio, another album was also being recorded there at the same time. Marjorie Razorblade by Kevin Coyne. Branson was smitten with Coyne's voice and was convinced that he should be a star. Mike Oldfield had even asked Coyne to sing on Tubular Bells, but... Coyne refused, saying that his music sounded like it should be coming out of an ice cream truck.
2: An ice cream truck from hell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which they all are. Really.
2: Branson Branson probably wanted Coyne to be the first singer-songwriter on the moon. <laughs> Branson gave Coyne free reign in the studio, and the album that he developed was one that was unlike any album that had ever been released. A bizarre, sprawling two-record set of unpolished music hall blues that is beautifully poetic visage into a working-class life that can spit venom, wrench your heart, mystify, and evoke glee in the swirl of a single song. It is a record that is somewhat disheveled, but one that cuts deep, with no song hitting, hitting the same nerve. Marjorie Razorblade is a rich album full of stellar songs, so we're going to take a moment to play a few. The first is Eastbourne Ladies, which is a ripping pre-punk boogie romp that's a scathing examination of the upper classes of apidity. The song is often cited by Johnny Rotten as one of his all-time favorite singles. In a bizarre world, Marlene could have been one of the biggest hits of the 70s. It's a sing-along plea for affection and was believed to have so much potential that Virgin released it twice as a single. Once in 73 and then they tried again in 77. There is a t- Drawing from his years working at the hospital is the track House on the Hill, which is an astoundingly real portrait of a patient's life at a psychiatric facility. Gorgeous and brutally sad, hypnotizing, it is a song that has resonated with me for years. Yeah, the
0: old lady said- Always late, you know why it's always late. Cause it's always empty. Fonny, funny, 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 who's oh, so funny that it's making me cry. Fonny, funny, 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 who's oh, so funny, Lord? Sometimes I wish I could die.
2: Chris gow our favorite uh, rock critic had a quote about that song. Gosh, what did he say?
1: His quote was another British eccentric with a voice scratchy and wavery enough to make Mick Jagger sound like Anthony Newley. Only this one can write songs. The annoying kid stuff tone of the perversity here pervade is redeemed by the fact that there isn't a chance it will sell. Not even with the Brit double LP condensed down to one. Also house on the hill is as convincing a madman song as I know. B plus. <laughs>
2: what a, what a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> he's really good at being a jerk, though. Yeah. What he says is true. It's convincing is a good word for his track. There, There is just a truth there that is hard to duplicate.
1: I think if you were to pick out one song that Kevin Coyne will be known for if, he's ever, if he ever ends up being known for anything, it'll be House on the Hill. That's the one that I think is going to stand the test of time for him.
2: Yes, yes. On the stranger end of the spectrum is this song, yet another example of Coin's uncanny knack for presenting mental illness in song form. Good Boy grinds at the listener like it was coming inside the mind of a madman, still being traumatized by his taunting schoolmaster or overbearing parents.
0: Bye. Good Boy! Good Boy! Oh, Good Boy! Good boy, good boy, good lad, well done, good boy, good lad, well done, good boy, good boy, good boy, good boy, you're just a lick spittle, lick spittle, lick spittle, lick spittle.
1: That song right there is the one that I am most affected by of any of the songs on that album.
2: What what I like about putting House on the Hill and then Good Boy kind of back to back is House on the Hill is it's not necessarily written from this perspective, but it's sort of on the outside looking in, like you are seeing the sadness of these people. Whereas Good Boy is sort of like this is what's going on in the inside of a lot of those people who are suffering from all sorts of terrible you know mental uh, issues. So he he really kind of gives a full picture of it. Both
1: are haunting in their own way. The narrator of that one is like the voice in someone's head, which is something that you just don't hear very often from anybody. And this kind of songwriting in general just doesn't come up very often with very many songwriters at all. I would say uh, most, if they even touch on it at all, it's for like a song or two. There are only a few like Handsome Family or Tom Waits or Lisa Germano that really do multiple songs like this, and they do it very well. Yeah, Um, Dolly Parton even uh, once in a while has done that.
2: Well, and I think you have kind of the other end of the spectrum is these people that kind of touch on it. And and I think it, it kind of glamorizes it a bit, or glamorizes the wrong word. Because I think at the heart of like, oh, okay, let's say like Pink Floyd's Shine on You Crazy Diamond, you know, about Sid Baird, or James Taylor's Fire and Rain. Mm-hmm. I think both of those are probably written as a pure emotional reaction to something. Right, like, or like Billy Joel's Uptown Girl. <laughs> Exactly. Totally pure. Mm-hmm. But through the course of them being popular and because it's a certain sound or, or whatever, they've gotten to the point where it's kind of so cheapened that it's it doesn't have any impact at all. Like I said, I don't think James Taylor set out to make a pop hit about a friend committing suicide or whatever that song is about. Mm-hmm. I do think it gets twisted a little bit, and I think you have to have that right kind of... Feeling or that right methodology of writing those songs, like those bands you mentioned, and certainly Kevin
1: Coyne. I don't doubt the sincerity of James Taylor or even like Eric Clapton's "Tears in Heaven," but it it ends up sounding more like a a greeting card about sadness, yeah. not an idea of what's going on in people's heads when they're kind of losing their grip, uh, which is which is much more terrifying and much more discomforting.
2: And the impact just goes away so quick. Yeah. It doesn't have the same resonance.
1: I think the handsome family do as good a job as Kevin Coyne does because they're doing it as narrators, like he did, um, and like the others that we mentioned, Tom Waits and Lisa Germano, but they seem like they're capturing a real, like a reality in there. Yes. Whereas even Tom Waits, who's a wonderful narrator, one of the best ever, some of his seem almost cartoonish at times. And the Handsome Family and Kevin Coin have humor in there, but it's not exaggerated.
2: Well, I think of like the Handsome Family line where they say, and you think of your Aunt Barbara, or the screams of your Aunt Barbara who went crazy in the 70s, wrote poems to Jimmy Carter but forgot to feed her kids. In two lines is a perfect encapsulation of just somebody who's breaking you know, without saying, oh, look at this crazy person, you know. Yep. It, it, it's just so much stronger and so much powerful. And I I don't think that's easy to do. I think more people would do that if
1: it, if it was easier to do. With Tom Waits, he's making it more theatrical. Like Frank has burned down his house and he says, oh, it's all chimney orange and Halloween red. But that's, that's not the same thing, I don't think.
2: No, no. Well, in The Cave can speak of crazy people but they're usually kind of violent and almost like a graphic novel or a cartoon
1: and i think nick cave is while he was doing that those um kind of deranged characters almost barbaric characters at times now he's kind of moved into sadness and depression clearly there's a reason for that and he's really excelled at that i think because it does sound real. And even though the words are much more abstract than they used to be, he's able to nail that. But I think that's a different kind of feel. That's unthinkable sadness, not the brain is injured.
2: We've, we've talked a lot about this in preparing for this episode. It's an interesting thing, and it's not always easy to <laughs> to talk about, even analyzing it. But I am glad that there are musicians who who are willing to kind of talk about this in more than a here's one song about mental illness sort of throw it on there because that's what this song is about but as a real examination and giving some time and thought and to the power
1: of it and exposing listeners to people that they've marginalized like these are real people this is what's happening in their head it's not their fault don't just shut them away in an an asylum or an institution
2: Marjorie Razorblade made a huge critical wave upon its release, and was promoted heavily by Virgin, but for whatever reason, perhaps the challenge of the lyrical content, or the bare-bones instrumentation, or Coyne's acquired taste vocals, as Mr. Chris Gow told us about, the record didn't sell well. Coyne was particularly disappointed with the commercial failure, stating, I felt like I was tapping into something exceptional. I'd managed to transfer Englishness into blues form those crackly old records coming through the ether that touched something inside of me. But it didn't reach people properly, it was misunderstood. We might offer an alternative, that the album was understood by the audience, but to the point of making them feel uncomfortable, confronting a reality they'd rather avoid, especially in an era when psychopathology wasn't considered an illness, but rather a defect, and those suffering were treated as pariahs. Virgin sliced up the double LP to a single disc for the U.S. release, but that sold even worse than the original. This was the start of an uncomfortable symbiosis of Virgin Records pushing Coin to become a star, their Joe Cocker, as it were, and Coin pushing back. This dynamic started with Marjorie Razorblade would throw his career off its path to the point where success was a doomed prospect to begin.
1: Case in point. Blame It on the Night, the next record, was a fairly blatant attempt at commercialization complete with superfluous horns, strings, and female vocals that appeared as natural as English language overdubs on a kung fu movie. Virgin, still a fledgling label, was desperate for another hit record, but Coin sounds bored and lazy most of the time. The best moments on the record are the most paranoid moments, like the title track.
0: At night I sing a great big tree, an icy water fall on me while well, I blame it on the night Here yes, I play on a night
1: The band toured constantly, and coin feeling the pressure started drinking heavily, already known as often acting aloof and mercurial. His boozing led to nervous ranting, bullying, and insomnia. For the next record, Matching Head and Feet, Virgin sacked Coin's previous backing band and brought in some ringers, including a pre-police Andy Summers and former Pink Floyd producer Norman Smith. Smith is on record saying that he didn't even care for Coin's music. So that's clearly a match made in heaven. Bathed in typical 70s fare... The record is often lifeless and disjointed. An example of this abject failure of matching slick production and coin's rough songsmithing is Turpentine, which mentions guns, knives, and smashing faces all in the first verse. It also sounds exactly like a record company flushing money. Hey. next record, Heartburn, was equally disappointing. Virgin brought in Mutt Lang for a couple of ill-conceived disco singles. Dumpster Fire might be too generous a word.
2: However, along the peripheries of his releases resided some brilliance. Bootleg tapes circulated of Coyne's brilliant musical, England, England, about notorious London mobsters the Cray Brothers, which was much better than anything else he was releasing at the time.
0: Local hops, all the shops, they know us well. Turn now, we rule the world. Boys and girls don't take a chance at the local dance because the sun will shine. It's yours, you know. The sun will shine. Honest to brothers.
2: A live album called In Living Black and White captured the erratic craziness of his live shows. The jacket for that record might be the most emblematic image of Coyne. The front cover shows Coyne dressed for a recital on a proper stage, bowing politely with a huge grin. The back cover reveals that Coyne is carefully hiding a straight razor behind his back.
1: It's frustrating that he was doing all this live stuff and just putting out so much that was never captured. It's too bad because I would really like to hear a lot of those songs from England, England and the Cray Brothers. And I I think that his sons have released some of the demos, but I'm not positive whether they actually are from those shows or whether they're even from those musicals. He just did a lot of
2: theater stuff, and I just don't think he ever just bothered going into the studio and recording it. So it was real kind of catch-as-catch-can as far as getting those tracks I think England England there's like a little kind of mini documentary about it that has some of the some of the songs that's where we pulled that clip from but people say that it was like really a pretty fantastic entire show it's too bad
1: that never made it to vinyl There is a website out there that captures a lot of the bootlegs and I think some of those might be there but it was it was pretty overwhelming to look through it
2: Oh just going through a studio records there's so many He's He has a huge <laughs> discography for a guy who's not really well-known and probably doesn't have like a, you know, short of House on the Hill. That's still not like a household song. You're not going to hear it on the radio ever. But, you know, a lot of times there'll be a single hit that's kind of everybody knows them for, and then they have a bunch of work that nobody knows. I don't think he even has that one song that he's real well-known for.
1: For having over 40 albums is also one of the reasons why he's going to probably remain mostly unknown because it's intimidating to look at 40 albums, especially when you know that a lot of the albums have a lot of bad material on them. Like they often have a lot of brilliant material, which is why we're doing this because we really like the good stuff. It's yeah. wonderful and it's all its own. There's nothing else like it. But other than like Case History or Marjorie Razorblade, there isn't really an album that people will say this is the one you should start with because the sound is different on a lot of them it's not accessible for the most part
2: i guess if we had to recommend one either case history if you're is a little bit more straightforward or marjorie Razorblades a little bit more a little bit more adventurous they're both brilliant and then there's one record later
1: yeah we're going to come up with a trilogy here soon that i think encapsulates his writing at its peak combined with the sound that really helps kind of propel both sound and lyrics into a into a new realm absolutely, yep
2: in nineteen seventy six the sex pistols opened for Kevin Coyne for a single show. This incident would be a bit of a spark for Coyne, who claimed back a bit of independence and allowed his ingenuity to break loose along with new collaborator Bob Ward. We played sound effects in a drum machine, Coin would perform almost entirely extemporaneously and dependent on his mood that evening. Crowds had no idea what to do with the odd screeching fellow flailing about the stage reciting poems about broken people. In 78, Coin Award released Dynamite Days. That's D-A-Z-E. It was an incredibly low-budget album, but it sounded like a pretty cool new wave demo tape. Coin yet again, revisits minds long lost with the song The Lunatic. Gazing
3: through at the flower beds
0: Under the Victorian canopy
3: Walking the leaves of the
2: The accompanying tour was miserable, and Coyne was depressed and completely unpredictable. However, his artistic drive at this time was still strong, and he was co-writing several plays and even helped create a film called The Institution.
1: The next coin release was the album that should have been his breakthrough record. Hold back some of the twitchy tension from the last record and replacing it with a sinister atmosphere. Millionaires and Teddy Bears is a strong, intense record with coins patented working class grit and backing music that supported his style and was right for the time. He got airplay on Radio One and was on the cover of NME, causing the ever patient Virgin to anticipate big sales in the tens of thousands. It sold (laughs) 6,000. The song, Having a Party, was an almost perfect embodiment of his career, with lyrics about millionaires attempting to shape his rock star persona, forcing him to lie and pretending to be tough. The final verse of the song is a bizarre Kafkaesque vision of coin being trapped in a hall full of golden records with disembodied voices asking which record is his.
0: (laughs) ¶¶ Nightmare Boogie One last night I dreamed I was trapped In a hole full of gold And discs Somebody said to me Which one is yours? And I had to confess I hadn't got one Hadn't got a single not got a single one at all. Not the one at all.
1: As the record continued to fall on deaf ears, Coyne's stage shows became increasingly experimental and confounding. About this time he would perform songs from a partially completed musical about Elvis Presley. Appropriately titled Fat Old Hero. His eccentricities would fuel his next three records released in between seventy-nine and eighty which are amazingly dark, demented, and enthralling.
2: The first was his collaboration with slap-happy Henry Cow art bear's avant-garde chanteuse Dagmar Krauss. Babel is an absolute cult classic. It is an intense and emotional ode to the vast wastelands between love and loneliness, written as coin was in the depths of alcoholism and a failing marriage. Coin and Kraus primarily trade off songs rather than duet, but their vocals work to accentuate the dependency of the theme. Here are two tracks that demonstrate this stylistic approach. Krause's lead on Lonely Man, and Coyne leads on I Really Love You.
4: Lonely man crawling in corners, opening drawers with nothing to hide, seeing That don't exist Living your life in a vacant mist Creeping down and falling around Lonely man, you're not
0: walking Never
4: go on streets, you're not
3: talking
0: That's I wasted waiting In that lonely bedroom face pressed against the window face all full of gloom watching wild men screaming in the public bars seeing the headlights whirling
2: A testament to its power, Will Oldham, aka Bonnie Prince Billy, performed the record in its entirety in 2010, and has released a gorgeous single featuring two of the songs, including a cover of this cat killer song, I Confess.
0: I confess that I killed the cat The cat was speckled and fat it was an angry cat but i thought it was laughing i confess that i hit my brother and then i trapped my mother and then i struck my sister her nose was bleeding
2: originally conceived and performed as a musical Coyne told the Sun newspaper, much to the chagrin of Virgin, that the musical was actually about the Moore murderers, a couple who had sadistically murdered five children in the
1: 60s. Not all publicity is good. (laughs) (laughs) The next effort was 1980's Bursting Bubbles, a cold, fractured, and angular record that has avant-garde, minimalist, and jazz aspects. Coyne arrived with no written material for the record. He would have the band play a riff, then jump in with lyrics almost on the spot. This song, Learning to Swim, Learning to Drown, was entirely written off the cuff, including the amazing line, Sliced like a cucumber, cracked like an egg, sitting like a little dog, waiting to beg for you, for him.
0: I'm sliced like a cucumber, cracked like an egg, sitting like a little dog, waiting to beg for you, for him. For me, for you, for
3: so some, something.
1: Coyne continues his career-long exploration of the dark depths of the human psyche with his terrifying stream-of-consciousness poem, a callback to case history with Mad Boy No. 2.
0: But I want to tell you, I don't feel out of place. I've been watching you for oh so long. You're just a human race. 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 You're just a human race.
1: race. Coin was deteriorating quickly. His father had died, and that was a huge emotional burden to him. Bob Ward begged him to take a year off touring, but he was back on the road in a month or two. In the midst of the chaos, Coyne entered the studio with the new waivers, The Ruts, for a session that was an uneasy combination of chaos and conviction. Coyne would be 100% self-assured about a song as soon as it was recorded, not caring at all to do any extra takes in favor of hitting the pub. Described by the band as the antithesis of a control freak, Released in 1980 was the double LP Sanity Stomp, and it was naturally uneven and would ultimately prove to be the last straw for the Virgin Coin love affair. In the early and mid-80s, Coin had lost
2: almost any footing he had had in his professional and personal life. Virgin had long abandoned him, and he was bouncing around labels with uneven to horrible results. His marriage dissolved completely, and he became estranged from his son's. He looked like a sweaty ball of putty who, by all accounts, couldn't tune a guitar and spent most nights getting kicked out of pubs. He would say later that he had almost no memory of the 1980s, despite many of those records being recorded at that time as very, very good. After a nervous breakdown, he somehow found himself in Germany, where he had had a modicum of success earlier in his life. Close to death, he luckily stumbled into a sympathetic religious studies teacher, Helmi Schmidt, in Nuremberg in 1986. They would eventually fall in love and marry. And she would be a key factor in getting Coyne to quit drinking and refocusing his life onto painting. Though it was a struggle, he managed to quit alcohol entirely and fervently began to work. Most waking hours, seven days a week, first by strictly painting, and then he wrote several books of sort stories and eventually recorded music again in the 90s. He was lauded in all three areas. His paintings were regularly shown in exhibitions and are still commercially relevant. He also resumed his role as a de facto social worker again, helping other addicts seek recovery.
1: I think after Virgin, he went to Cherry Red for a little while, and I think from there until the end of his life, he was designing his own record covers based on paintings he he had made.
2: Yes, yeah, he, yeah, most of his late era covers, he he definitely did the artwork, and it's it's very stylized for sure.
1: His late period Renaissance included several interesting records on a dizzying number of labels, with a parade of collaborators marching through his music. For a couple albums, he performed with a backing crew called The Paradise Band. In 1995, he recorded a stage musical called The Adventures of Crazy Frank, about a comedian, I guess, named Frank Randall, with himself in the title role. 97's Knocking on Your Brain featured prominent guitar work from Gary Lucas, who also played with Captain Beefheart and Jeff Buckley. At the same time? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Coin's son Robert helped co-write 1999's Sugar Candy Taxi. In fairness, though, most of the albums have good moments. There is no one single late-period record that stands above the rest. A deep sea to swim through. Here's a few of our favorite tracks from the 90s and 2000s. Fish Brain from 1992's Wild Tiger Love is a perfectly creepy song about, well, fish brains, eat em up yum which are also pretty creepy.
0: Wandering in your house coat all around the house, Seeing strange creatures, strange little mice. It isn't very nice. What do you say? You're not from Mars, anyway. Fish spring driving me mad. Fish brain, making me sad. Fish spring driving me mad. Fish brain, making me sad. I'm going to fetch a doctor in a long time.
1: In 2004, Coyne released an album called Donut City, which is overall probably the best of the late period albums that I heard. There's a song on there called I Hear Voices, which we're going to play, and I think that really harkens back to a lot of the stuff he'd been doing earlier. I hear voices
0: late at night. I hear voices late at night. I hear the voices. They chatter in my ear. I hear those voices late at night.
1: In 2002, Coyne flew to Chicago to record with... Mekon John Langford, and alt-country superstuds the Pine Valley Cosmonauts. There was no music or lyrics prepared beforehand, which made for a fun, spontaneous recording session that had Coyne making up words on the spot, as he was often wont to do. All 11 songs were recorded in one hour session. One Day in Chicago isn't a true swan song, but It sounded full of life with some beautiful moments that give insight to the direction that Coyne may have taken had he lived longer. Here's one of our favorite tracks from his entire career called Overland and Sea.
2: On the plane ride home, Coyne had some serious coughing fits and was shortly diagnosed with lung fibrosis. He continued touring, but shortly after required oxygen 24 hours a day. On the night of his death, December 2nd, 2004, he woke up suddenly and joked at his wife, I think I'm going to die. To say the music of Kevin Coyne is challenging is a bit like saying Billy Joel is a simpleton. It just doesn't accomplish quite enough. His ability to create song sketches of tragic comedies is nearly unrivaled, save for the likes of The Mountain Goat's portraits of toxic relationships or Leonard Cohen's six-minute existential crises. John Peel once quipped that the difference between other songwriters and Coyne was something between someone crying and someone disemboweling themselves. He called it anti-escapist music. The reality that he places in front of you can feel like it's too much to handle, and it may be if it weren't for the life that he breathes into his songs. That provides a comfort that is the human condition, and it is okay because we all suffer from it one way or the other. Even if not many people were listening, he was saying something that more of us need to hear. It might be a fool's errand for us to try and shed some light on Kevin Coyne, complicated and polarizing as he is. Of course trying to find logic and sense in the music industry has never been our strong suit.
1: So which coin albums do you currently own, or do you have on vinyl at least?
2: Well, I have the American version of Marjorie Razorblade, though there's a lot of really, really good songs on the double LP mm-hmm. that I'm tempted to get that one too. This In particular, there's a song called Jackie in Edna that I really like. I love that album so much, I, I really would love to have the double double LP version, but it's pretty expensive in the States. It's not so bad in Europe, but then you have to pay for the shipping. I also have that live album I mentioned with the really cool cover, and then I have Matching Head and Feet.
1: What do you have? I have Case History, Marjorie Razorblade. I actually have both versions, single and double. Uh, matching Head and Feet, which I've never been able to get into. In Living Black and White, the live album you just mentioned, uh-huh. and Babel. And then I have that Siren one as well. And I was thinking even about with that Marjorie Razorblade, I don't need the single version anymore. So I would be willing to give it away if somebody, mailing it to somebody, if anybody, if a listener wants a copy of it, I can send it to them if they would like it. Yeah, reach out. If
2: you listen to this show and and like felt like you want to know more or just, just want a free record... It's it's amazing. It really I mean, it's a record I've i loved for for a long time. We both got into Kevin Coyne because of Will Oldham's single. We're both huge Will Oldham fans and he did the single, which is mis misprinted where it says the songs of Kevin Loyne. And it had two songs from Babel, and they're really good, and I think we both kind of backtrack from there and I think we eventually found Marjorie Razorblade and Case History. Yep. I remember I had Case History on C D
1: listen to it a lot so the first one I had was Babbel but it was that Will Oldham single in 1997 I believe or 96 somewhere in there that really yeah I had no idea who he was before then at all
2: well and the thing about it is he still is really really not well known especially in, in the US we did a kind of informal poll on Pantheon our, our podcast network where I asked a bunch of the hosts hey you know Vote on, you know, if you know Kevin Coyne, if you've heard of him, or if you don't know him at all. And almost everybody didn't hadn't heard of him at all. I think at least one person had heard of him, knew he was kind of a British songwriter guy that didn't couldn't pick him out of a lineup or anything. Like we said, there's a lot of possible reasons for why he he never got famous, his content Virgin messing up a lot of things, though. I will say this about Virgin. They must have lost a ton of money on him and they didn't give up. Yeah.
1: Branson liked him a lot.
2: I mean, he had really strong backers. Peel loved him too, you know? Yep. So I don't think he was purposely not trying to get famous, but I also think he, there's many things he did that did not help him with his career.
1: I think he made claims about not wanting to be famous, but I think it was after he had already known that he wasn't going to be famous. So I don't know if how honest they were. <laughs>
2: he accepted it. And that is a totally true fact that that Electra approached him to to front the doors, and he very wisely turned that down, because that would have been all sorts of awful.
1: It was, like, immediately after Morrison had died, too. Like, a coin had said that it was kind of gross how quick that they had approached him.
2: A lot of times, that's the factoid that people know about him, so... Yeah. Anyways, a wonderful artist, definitely worth your time getting into. And hopefully, this show kind of gave you a, a snapshot of whether you would like him or not.
1: And send us an email at high podcast at gmail.com or Twitter or Facebook. First one that comes in with, with a request for the album. And I will send off that single LP version of Marjorie Racerblade. All
2: right. You ready to play some songs? Yeah.
1: The first track we're going to have tonight is going to be by Spaceman 3, and it is from Taking Drugs to Make Music to Take Drugs to, and the song is called Losing Touch With My Mind. That was Spaceman 3 with Losing Touch With My Mind, and this is the version from Taking Drugs to Make Music to Take Drugs to, and the copy that I have was released in 2018 on Superior Viaduct Records. It's a double LP. This album is actually a demo, collection of demos from 1986 known as the Northampton Demos, and that were those were the demos that got Spaceman 3 signed to, I think, Glass Records when they were signed, they went in and recorded their first album, "Sound of Confusion," and they did not in any way care for the production. They thought the production was terrible. I think it's pretty good. I really like that album a lot, but they much preferred this version. So I thought I would put this one on. It's got this version as compared with the "Sound of Confusion" version is much more Stooges-esque. It's a, about a minute and a half longer, and it's kind of dronier, and it can be more impressive at times. It's just, they're both really great versions of a really great song. So in case you don't know, Spaceman 3 was around for a little while in the mid to late 80s. Uh, they're sort of what I consider them to be kind of the UK version of Ga- Galaxy 500. I think I might be the only one who thinks that, but they are a great band. And one of the members of the band, Jay Spaceman, ended up forming Spiritualize, which is one of my favorite all-time bands. And I I like them spiritualized even more than Spaceman 3, which I know is blasphemous around a lot of people. But uh, this song is, I think, relevant to this episode, and it's just a wonderful, hard-driving psych song.
2: Yeah, it's a great song. I think I like spiritualized more, too.
1: I think his lyrics got a lot better. He was a better songwriter, and he was better at choreographing music by that point.
2: Yes, absolutely. Oh, well, entire, I mean, he's one of the best at that. I think the droney psych stuff is great and a lot of fun. And it's very different, but it's it's kind of limited in scope. Even when you're the best at doing that, it's still, you know, you're still playing in that sandbox. And I mm-hmm. think Spiritualized does different things that are a lot, very interesting and fun, but neither yes. really here nor there. Nobody's paying to listen to my opinion on Spiritualized Basement 3. I've got another mind song. My song is You've Got My Mind Messed Up by James Carr.
5: I said I wasn't gonna tell nobody But I just can't keep it long to myself now For as long as I've been running around I finally met a little girl that really got me down. Baby, you got my mind messed up now. Little girl, little girl, you sure got my mind messed up now. I go to bed and I can't sleep. Sugar bomb, dancing all in my mind. Every day you whip me seem like Valentine. I walk the rainbow, Lord, and I chain the moon. Walk around the world and get back before noon Baby, you got my mind, Mr. Doll. Sure got my mind, Mr. now Just gotta, just gotta help me. Oh, oh, yeah oh, now, baby, you got my mind messed up now. You sure got my mind messed up now. You know I love you with all of my heart. you can
3: on me I, I, love you. Oh, I
2: love you all right so this song may not be um there's a good chance you've heard it it's not super rare or unknown i mean it was a, a single a very popular single and worthwhile i mean there's a good reason why it was it's it a gorgeous song it's a kind of a country soul ballad there's some real real pain in there and James Carr was a, a kid that grew up in Memphis, and after he got turned out by Stax, he he ended up making some recordings for a label called Goldwax Records in the '60s. And this song, um, "You Got My Mind Messed Up," did really well in '66. It went to number seven uh, on the R&B chart and '63 on the pop chart. Carr suffered from from bipolar disorder for most of his life, and that ended up really affecting his career and kept him from hitting the echelon of soul singer like an Otis Redding, even though many people thought he he was just as good uh, in his prime, and and his his voice is amazing. But, you know, a lot of sad stuff, and he sometimes couldn't record, or he would not be able to handle the stress of performing and touring. I think it's in the late 70s, he, he had an uh, unfortunate... Episode where he was basically overdosed on antidepressants and just froze instead of an audience. Um, So he he never really totally recovered from his mental illness. So kind of sad. He died with died of lung cancer in the in the nineties, pretty young, in age fifty eight. But he has had sort of a a revival when people have really understood his significance and his power as a soul singer. The album, and this is, a, if you love soul music, this is a kind of a classic, but it's called You Got My Mind Messed Up, and it was in 1967 on Gold Wax,
1: and I strongly recommend it. I think he's mostly known for The Dark Side of the Street, right? Oh, yeah.
2: I didn't even mention that, yeah, which was covered by all sorts
1: of people. He should have been as big as Sam Cooke or Otis Redding, Solomon Burke. They should all be, Yeah, he should be right up there with them. His voice is at least as good.
2: And You Got My Mind Messed Up as start to finish almost a perfect soul record. I mean, it's, it's great. It's just beautiful.
1: Absolutely. There are reissues out there, too. Yeah, I, ha- I have a reissue, I think.
2: My second song is Dogwood by Terry Allen. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about the song and Terry Allen. And the reason is not because it's not interesting or worth worthwhile, but I may keep it in my back pocket for a turntable talk. Cause I think he's actually that interesting and that, that important. I chose him because he's sort of an un, lesser known songwriter type guy who did a lot of art and stuff like that. But Terry Allen is kind of like artistic outlaw country. This song was on his first record called Juarez that was originally put out in 1975, but recently reissued on by the label Paradise of Bachelors, who we've talked about before, 2016. And it is a great record. It's kind of a saloon song cycle and about a couple falling apart as they're traveling across the Southwest. And there's all sorts of characters. It's kind of a musical Cormac McCarthy type (laughs) adventure. Terry Allen's from Lubbock. Again, he's much like James Carr. He's he's starting to get more and more popular. Thanks a lot to Paradise of Bachelors, who's put out this and his other, probably even more well-known album, Lubbock on Everything, that has the song Amarillo Highway. It's been covered by all sorts of people. But he's also putting out new music on that label too, which is great. He does a lot, a lot of multimedia stuff, art, sculpture, painting, drawing, installations. So real interesting guy. This song is just, it's a real powerful song to me. And there's something about, about how it lingers, and there's a lot of space in the song, and it works really, really well, I think. So, Terry Allen is definitely worth checking out. Uh, Lubbock on Everything is great. Juarez is great. And maybe at some time we'll circle back and give him the, the time he deserves on the podcast.
1: The last song we're going to play tonight is by Lisa Germano, who we briefly mentioned earlier, and the song is called A Beautiful Schizophrenic.
4: A beautiful schizophrenic A beautiful schizophrenic I just don't know which one I know I like I know you like my bad side I love you like my good side I don't know which one, I know, I like the one, I know, I think, same as you, you
1: All right that was lisa germano with a beautiful schizophrenic off of her 1996 album excerpts from a love circus released on 4ad records lisa germano is one of the most amazing musicians songwriters and singers i know of she's able to create entrancing landscapes right inside of your head it's like they it's just going right into your ear as a whisper and it's really got a lot of great instrumentation especially on this album and the album before this called geek the girl and there's a lot of calliopes and toy pianos and she's arranged it all wonderfully And she's known for being a violin player so there's a lot of violin on it as well and she writes a lot of songs about addiction and depression and self-loathing a lot which is an illness all in and of itself i think Uh, but on this album She does a lot of that with humor and sadness, and it's an incredibly affecting album overall. The other album of hers I mentioned is Geek the Girl, which is, she's got a lot of albums, but it's those two that just really uh, could really mess you up. They're very, very challenging as far as emotions go. I think they're, they're difficult to listen to, but they're worth listening to, and she is just absolutely wonderful. She's still making records. She's now on... Young God records, I believe, or she's self-releasing some stuff as well. She doesn't have a whole lot out on vinyl, though. Like, Geek the Girl is not on vinyl, was never on vinyl, even though it was on 4AD, which seems strange to me. But if you get a chance, you should listen to those albums. Geek the Girl is sort of notorious for having one song, I think it's called Psychopath, that is music played to a 911 call being made by a woman who is being attacked by a stalker it's harrowing yeah it's brutal but she does a great job with narr uh with narrators along very similar i think to uh, tom waits but her goal is a little bit different with what she's trying to do but she does a very very good job with it
2: all right well that's uh four songs for you uh that kind of fit with our theme today and now we've only got one uh one piece of unfinished business and that's the audio trivia Okay. Let's do it. I better figure this out real quick.
1: All right. So what I'm going to do while you are putting on your thinking cap, which has never helped, (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and play these again. And this quiz is five clips. I would like for you to name the artist, the song, and what is the theme. And the theme is specifically based on the title of the songs. All right. Here we go. Track one.
3: I
4: lost. Here we go again. I'll take
0: you over. I'll take you over. I'll like I'll take you over.
4: on this song.
1: So why don't you tell me which ones, which song titles do you have? The first one's
2: REM, and I think it's Ebo the Letter. Yes. Okay. The second song is Liz Fair. Uh, and it's something from Girly Sounds, but I don't, I don't know the name of the song. The third song is Yeah Yeah, yeah Yes. Yes. I don't know the song of that either. Okay. The fourth song is a great song, and it's a song I used to love, and I have, probably haven't heard in a decade, but it's Sabado Ocean. Yep. And I listened to that a lot. I listened to a lot of Sabado back in the day, and I don't as much anymore, which is kind of strange. But great song, Ocean. So I got Ebo, The Letter, and Ocean. The last song is Neutral Milk Hotel, and I think it's Naomi's song. I don't know that album as well as far as the song tracks, but I think that's Naomi's song.
1: Just called Naomi, but yeah. Okay. Okay, so you've got Ebo the Letter, Ocean, and Naomi. Track two is Liz Fair, and the song is called California. Okay. And track three is the Yeah Yeah with a song called Why Control?
2: Oh, that is the name of that.
1: It is. I would not, I have no reason to lie. Oh, I should (laughs) have got that one. All right, so now you have Ebo the Letter, California, Y-Control, Ocean, and Naomi. Ebo the letter. If I were to give the song titles in this order, maybe it would help. California, (laughs) Ocean, Y-Control, Naomi, Ebo the letter. Coin. That's it. You son of a bitch. <laughs> C-O-Y-N-E. That's horrible. That's so tough. Sorry. The
2: old scramble. I'm so tired I thought it was going to spell out Nimoy. It <laughs> <laughs> should always spell out Nimoy. Because <laughs> I was looking at, yeah, 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 as an ocean and Naomi, like Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty good. They're pretty good. No, that's fun. That's fun. All right. So I think we need to go ahead and thank our uh, podcast network, Pantheon. There's all sorts of awesome uh, music podcasts that if you're into us, you'll like a lot of that stuff. And if you like a lot of that stuff, hopefully you'll like some of us. I listened to the Neil Gaiman interview. He lives in uh, Bob, well, Uh, not Bob Dylan's house, but uh, who's the manager? Grossman.
1: Grossman. Albert Grossman.
2: Yeah, Yeah, lives in Al Grossman's house uh, by Woodstock now. And so uh, he talked about a lot of the history there. That was real interesting. And that's on a podcast called Is It Rolling Bob that just joined the the podcast network. You listen to anything
1: interesting? That one, I listened to that one. I thought that was pretty good. The Is It Rolling podcast, I think is fun to listen to. I'm Almost too big of a Bob Dylan fan to really be able to listen to it too much. Uh, <laughs> it's because I get too weirded out by it. Um, but I, I, it's a great <laughs> podcast. I just have a, I have our time.
2: Is it like when there's two Highlanders, one of you's gonna have to cut off the other person's head?
1: Yeah, I feel like there's always a competition. It's like, no, no, that's not right. Oh, we, yeah, I guess it is. Never mind that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but everything that I listen to on on Pantheon is very good. I think everybody should try out a few of their podcasts. At least they've got they're growing very quickly, which is awesome for everyone involved Absolutely. because they have a lot of really incredibly bright, talented people and really educated people talking about music on all of these podcasts. It's wonderful. I very much appreciate being in any way associated with them.
2: I was about to say they got bright, educated, eloquent podcasters talk about music and then they have they also have Joe and me
1: wah wah
2: make sure that you're going out and spending some money on music and spending some money in a worthwhile way for artists and record labels and music shops that are truly focused on independent independent artists I know I've spent some money recently buying buying some stuff from Bull Moose and some different stuff so you should too it it makes you feel good and if you love music like us and if you've listened to this podcast thus far you definitely love music it it's important to kind of give back and again we always do these podcasts not to take money away from artists but to uh, encourage people to spend more money
1: on them so and come follow us on twitter i mentioned this earlier our handle on twitter is highway hifi pod instagram same handle Email us at highway high fi podcast at gmail.com. If you have any topics you want us to look into or we're happy to do it. If it's, if it's something we want, <laughs> send us any ideas you have, any, any comments, leave us. If you wouldn't mind subscribe on whatever pod catching thing, you're listening to this on and leave us some reviews, flattering reviews, if at all possible, and find us on Facebook Again, if somebody out there really wants a copy of that Kevin Coyne album, let me know. I'll send it out to the first person that sends something in that I like. He won't make
2: you even unscramble like we usually do for a contest.
1: That's right. Yeah, there won't be any. There's no strings attached. I'll pay for shipping. I just want somebody to really enjoy this album.
2: Well, we appreciate you uh, listening to us and uh, hope you learned a little bit today and uh we will see you next time.
6: Hey, this is Brad Page from the I'm in love with that song podcast, inviting you to join me as we explore a different song each episode, discovering what makes these songs great. The performances, arrangements, and the production tricks and techniques are all part of creating those magic moments that turn a good song into a great one. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into each song, listening to all those nuances that came together to make it a great song. Our journey takes us across the musical map, from the Beatles and the Stones to Aretha Franklin and Tom Petty, Kiss, the Cars, Todd Rundgren, and Roxy Music. From Badfinger to Al Green, Stevie Wonder to David Bowie. From Aerosmith to the Zombies. We listen to it all on the I'm in Love with That Song podcast. You may be unfamiliar with some of these songs, and some of them you've probably heard a hundred times, but I bet if we listen closely, we can discover something new. So join me. On the I'm in love with that song podcast, and let's listen together because I think you're going to love these songs too.